years of uh, Babylonian captivity, he made a very sweet promise in Jeremiah chapter 3 uh, regarding helpers that he would send to the people, those that he refers to as shepherds after his own heart. And he says he would give them these shepherds and that these shepherds would feed his people with knowledge and with understanding. What's the difference between knowledge and understanding? These are are terms that you understand that are related to one another, that they have certain things in common. Well, what might be the difference between knowledge and understanding? What does it mean when it says knowledge? You might know something. You may know a basic fact, like E is equal to MC squared. Okay. But you won't understand what that means. Or most people don't understand what that means. Including me. So right. okay. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no, you can know a fact, but not understand how it okay. works out. So knowledge, uh, go ahead, Fred. I have a silly example. Go ahead. Fine. Okay, so knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. That understanding is knowing it doesn't belong in fruit salad. <laughs> All right. Off a good start this morning. Um, Derek, what about you? What's the difference between our knowledge and understanding? Well, just to use, I was going to say, you can know that there is a distinction between knowledge and understanding. But then understanding is being able to answer that question and say, how do you differ? Okay. There's, there's more than just information. Right. There's an ability to apply that information okay. All right. and explain things. All right, so we're, ready, we're getting there. Uh, uh, Larry? A simple difference is what and how. Or, or what and so what. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Ted, what do you say? Okay, so knowledge. I think that's right. You're right. All, I, all, all these are all these are good answers. Um, so knowledge has to do with things like facts, right? Knowledge. There's a God. What is God like? God is triune. Right? Understanding takes that knowledge and, 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 and does what with it? It applies it. God is sovereign, that's knowledge. Being able to pillow your head at night and rest is understanding. Okay? Knowledge is, again, God exists. Understanding is trusting in Him, going to Him, leaning on Him, praying to Him. Knowledge says the Bible is the Word of God. Understanding is that I need to get to know it and take it in and apply its truths. Knowledge is based upon facts, statements, realities, indicatives. Understanding is rooted in an application of these facts. And what's, a, what's another word for this in the Bible? Wisdom. It's wisdom. Understanding is, is wisdom. It is taking what we know and asking ourselves the question, as, as, as some have phrased it, so what? Right? Some have said that preaching can be boiled down to the what of the text and the so what of the text. 
What does the text say? But then how do I live in, in light of it? Does it alter me in any way? Does it alter my understanding? Does it alter the way that I live? The idea is that God's people coming back from captivity would find hope in a certain kind of, say, ministry. Now, in its immediate context, that may have had to do not just with religious leaders and prophets and priests, but for kings and rulers, uh, those that would have a, a civil application of that as well, because shepherds in the Old Testament were not just as we think. When I say shepherd in the New Testament, you think pastors. Uh, if you say shepherd in the Old Testament, they thought of, of leaders and rulers. But the idea is that the Lord's people would learn what is true. And that's why sometimes we say, I, if, we're, if we're tempted to say, I don't like doctrine, I don't like this catechizing, I don't like this statement, so this is true, this is true, this is true. Now if that's all we did, if that's all we ever gave, that could be, it, it would be imbalanced. I don't want to say problematic, but it certainly would be imbalanced. But what's the goal of knowing those things? It is ultimately that we might think properly, live properly, speak properly, interact properly. The knowledge of the truth would aid them. That's the idea. They were about to come back from captivity to a land that had been destroyed, a temple that was in ruins, and they would need guidance based upon truths in God's Word to allow them to live in the tumultuous times to come. So that they could ask themselves, what do I know to be true? And then how do I live in light of that truth? And this remains a pressing question for us as believers. And I believe it, it feels all the more urgent as we consider the moral landscape of the time in which we live to be changing so radically and so rapidly. And so we need to know our God. Every generation of God's people needs to be rooted and grounded in the realities of who God is. We need to be rooted in an understanding of grace as well as an experience of His grace. And we need to know our Bibles. And we have an ability, dear brethren, to know our Bibles. I, and we can argue in a way that no generation in human history has if we are English-speaking. No group of believers has had a greater access to the Word of God and to good means by which we can study our Bibles than this generation. And yet, there remains, largely speaking, a great degree of biblical ignorance even in the church at this time. The fact that we have our Bibles doesn't mean we read our Bibles. And the fact that we may occasionally read our Bibles doesn't mean we understand our Bibles. We need to know those things so that we can be enabled by God's grace not only to know Him and to worship Him and not only to have the joys of knowing that our sins are forgiven and heaven is ours, but to be able to navigate the waters that 
and that will be before us. We haven't reached the end of this. And whatever you're going to see this week by way of a, a new headline, a, a new law passed, or a new bill being considered that will alarm and, and, and trouble us and cause us some degree of anger, fear, anxiety, consternation, whatever may be our original impulse, we're going to need to get back and ground ourselves in the knowledge and the truth of what God has revealed, believing that when God breathed out his word over thousands of years and completed that revelation 2,000 years ago, he knew all the days that were appointed for us. You may be shocked, but God is not shocked. And God feels no compulsion to add to our Bibles new revelation to help us navigate what appeared to us to be new waters. It was all in his mind. And God gave to his people two and three and four thousand years ago. And today we can face our lives with confidence, believing that we have a sufficient revelation to deal with whatever is coming our way. So the purpose of these classes, and for those of you uh, visiting with us, we have begun a series, I think this is number four, uh, on what we were calling, using a book that was written some time ago called Principles of Conduct. Another way that we could title this is to use Francis Schaeffer's old book, How Should We Then Live? He was asking that question 40 years ago. How should we then live? Remember 40 years ago? Remember what seemed new and radical and troubling 40 years ago and now seems almost quaint in comparison to I wish, I wish I could fight those battles? But how should we then live? And so the purpose of these classes in the weeks and months and, and however long it takes, we have no ending with this other than to try to accomplish as much as we can accomplish uh, with this. Uh, I have here a list of some of the things that we hope to discuss here uh, in the days ahead. So we're, we're dealing here with creation ordinances uh, right now. We, we want to touch on things even like environmentalism, animal welfare, human sexuality, so-called pronoun hospitality, pornography, homosexuality, gay marriage, polygamy, uh, uh, singleness, divorce and remarriage, voluntary childlessness, contraception, reproductive technologies, genetic engineering, gene therapy, stem cell technology, uh, the ordinance of labor, things like voluntary unemployment, retirement, sanctity of life, abortion, euthanasia, termination of treatment, end of life, decisions, capital, uh, punishment, the sanctity of truth, uh, some matters relating to uh, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, law and grace, um, just war theory perhaps, critical race theory and related issues, uh, what uh, Truman calls expressive individualism, uh, the Christian and the secular state, civil disobedience, dominion issues, theonomy, etc., uh, virtual reality, we may try to get into artificial intelligence and some of those kinds of things that we're going to understand the times in which we live. Some of you, I don't even know what those things are. <laughs> uh, but what does the Bible, does the Bible give us some ground to stand on uh, when everything may feel like sinking sand? So how do we stand on Christ, the solid rock? And so again, there are aspects of 
our changing culture that some of us saw coming. But there are other things. I can't imagine that anybody saw coming some of the things that we're facing now. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you might have said, look, I, I think the day will come when this will happen. What people are prognosticating now are things that, if you're an old dude like me, you would have never ever thought in our lifetime uh, that we would deal with these things. Now, this is a class on distinctly Christian ethics. It is rooted in the conviction that there is a God, a God who has made us, and a God who communicates truly and accurately to us in the pages of the Bible. So that when those foundational truths for us are removed, then we are left merely in the realm of opinion. Opinions may be better than others, safer than others, better than others, but ultimately without a thus saith the Lord, we're left to the realm of opinion. And as believers, we have a thus saith the Lord. But because God is the maker of all men, and because God does love the world, which he made, there are principles of conduct which are for the good of the world in which we live. Now again, the ability of others to see that and to embrace that and to live that when they are in their soul at enmity against God, the natural man is not subject to the law of God and cannot be, where there is by nature an opposition that must be conquered by grace. And yet there are things that have proven good not just for the church, but for society. So the questions before us in these days are, how do we, again, this is, I'm not teaching this to you about, I'm teaching this here to us. How do we live before God? How do we live in community? What is our role before our neighbor? What is our duty to the world? What is the purpose of the church in the world? And how do we as believers and how do we as a church meet the needs of the hour and do as much good as we can under the sovereignty of God? He has shown you, O oh man, Micah 6.8, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God who are not just relevant 3,000 years ago, but relevant at the present hour. Now again, to aid us, uh, under that end, we are starting at the beginning, and we have sought to argue that the truths laid out in the opening chapters of Genesis are fundamental to understanding who and what people are and what our obligations to God are. Remove the reality that we are creatures made in the image of God. Or that in the beginning, God made them, in the words of Jesus, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And that as men and women, boys and girls, there are differences, but also an equal dignity and worth, and hence a holy obligation as well to know and worship the Creator rather than the creation. And when all that is turned on its head, and we lose our mooring or lose our foundation, it doesn't matter what the superstructure is. When the foundation is eroded, the building is going to come down. Now, we'll have more to say about some of these in, in future classes. But I do want to say that this issue of identity and how we identify to find worth, and so many today are finding their identity in what? 
How do they think about themselves? I am what? What am I? I am a... As people are wrestling even with this. The very fundamental issue of identity. What am I? Am I my sexuality? Am I my sexual impulses and desires? Am I preeminently a, 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 a gender, whatever that is? Or am I preeminently a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a creature, made in the image of God? And lose that, and then try to assign worth to a person and ask them why they have worth. An opportunity last week to spend some time with an atheist and uh, a professing atheist. I didn't get to ask all the questions I thought later that I would, I would want to ask. But as an evolutionist, as an atheist, there were things I wanted to say. So you, what do you believe is good? And, and how do you believe people should be treated and why? Are we just random chance beings? Are we just animals? Just a little more, maybe more highly evolved animals? What is the obligation? What obligation do we have one to another if we are merely uh, enlightened and hairless apes or primates? Where do we find dignity as human beings? And so having sought to lay some of that foundation, we turn our attention briefly to the matters of marriage and procreation. Classes on that are coming up in more detail in the weeks ahead. And then we looked at some truths regarding labor and their place in what is often called the dominion mandate or uh, our showing uh, stewardship over the earth. Now, what is the third of the major creation ordinances? Because we looked at marriage and procreation. We'll put those as one. We touched on labor. What's the third? Rest. Rest or Sabbath. Right, so what I want to do today uh, is to spend some time looking at the Sabbath and some of these matters of ethical obligation. Okay, this would be a, and again, I'm not teaching this at U of L. I'm not teaching this on the, on the uh, steps of the uh, Capitol building in Washington. I'm talking here to a group of, of God's people where sadly there is a lot of division about this issue of the Sabbath. But in regard to it being a creation ordinance, we're going to see and understand that the Bible is, is quite clear uh, on this matter. Uh, marriage and procreation pointed to several realities. And we touched on some of these. So marriage and procreation show, among other things, that we are meant to be communal beings. It is not good for the man to be alone. And it's not good for people to be alone. We live our lives not only in families, but in communities. Uh, it was as communal beings that we would populate the earth, showing in a sense as God's image bearers, that God is king overall. We looked at what does labor teach us uh, as image bearers. Again, we exercise a wise, a wise stewardship over the earth, utilizing the re utilizing, discovering creatively the resources that God has, as it were, hidden in the earth, and utilize them according to our various understandings and gifts and even desires, so that one sees a, a tree and, and they see a, 
a chair and another sees a violin or a flute and another an, an axe, you know, an axe handle or whatever it is, according to your desires and impulses and ingenuity. Some of us could look at a, a, at a branch forever and never think, if I hollowed that out and drilled holes in it and blew in here and put my fingers here, it would make musical notes. But somebody did. Saw that. That's part of image bearing. It's part of the creativity. It's part of this wise stewardship over the earth. Now, before we get into the Sabbath, I want to ask, that these creation ordinances are given in creation to man and woman in Eden. Do these ordinances continue after the fall? Alright, and is there evidence? What, what evidence do we have that they continue after the fall? Deuteronomy 5. Alright, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, right? Our Lord's teaching on marriage. In the beginning, He made them and shows that there is. That Marie? Well, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. She has Satan. Okay, okay, so that there is procreation. Alright. So these things are. They continue after the fall. Are they affected by the fall? Yes. Isn't it interesting that the primary applications to our fallenness in Genesis 3 touch upon pain in procreation and pain associated with labor? So you see there that these things continue on, but that they are affected by them. We can also ask a question in regard to what I would call the great scheme of the Bible's narrative, which is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Those are the great acts of the Bible. So it's a, it's a story told in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we can have smaller acts uh, in between. How are these matters shaped by redemption? They're fascinating questions. But then also, what is their function in the world to come? Again, Charlie may touch on this, but these are fascinating things to think about and study. So what's going to be the state of marriage in the world to come? What about the state of labor in the world to come? That's an interesting question to think through. Will we be workers in the world to come? Will there be, a, or it is, is it, when we think, we talk about, we're going to talk about in a moment here, an eternal Sabbath. Is the world to come only unending rest as, as we live it out here. It certainly is not unending idleness. And rest and idleness are not really the same thing. So it's just a few things to be thinking about. So what of, what of the Sabbath? So what is the Sabbath? We're talking about the Sabbath. What does the word Sabbath mean? It means rest. I remember having talks with people who, who argue against the Sabbath. They said, well, you know the word means Saturday. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it means rest. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It means rest. Why is there a Sabbath? I'm going to ask just very particularly in the creation account. Not in the broader scheme of redemption, which we can touch on. But in the beginning, what is God's purpose of the Sabbath. What did it show, or what was it related to? Structure. Okay, okay structure. Let's enter. Yeah, good. Jim, flesh that out just for a second. 
What do you mean by that structure? Well, we, we are still living on a seven-day work week, even though the French Revolution tried to get rid of it. But uh, we're still doing that, and it's still embedded in our, our <coughs> created beings. Yeah. Okay, so, but the thing is, is the rest is always just a rest from labor. It's not a rest from worship. Okay, yeah, great, very good. Um, there's a really fascinating aspect of this, and just to, to touch on this, when uh, in the French Revolution, they tried to go to a 10-day week, if you're familiar with this, and part of this was an understanding they had to destroy Christianity for the revolution to work, to destroy Christianity, they had to get rid of the Lord's Day. But what happened is people tried to live on a 10-day work week is that it, it, it wreaked havoc on them. Now, biologically, why is there, I shouldn't say biologically, um, astronomically, why is there a month? Allegedly. All right, because of the moon. Allegedly. It's okay. Why is there a year? What happens in a year? All right, why is there a week? Okay, okay. Why is there a day? Sun and moon. Sun and moon. The only answer for why there is a seven-day week is creation. It's not related to anything astronomical. Right? Day is. Month is. Year is. Week is not. But it is built into the pattern of our humanity, and it does give structure and rhythm to our life. So it's a day that means to rest. To, it, it, it means rest. It's rooted in creation and God's own pattern of creation. Right? We saw this a few months ago when we were studying this in, in Hebrews chapter four. There was a Sabbath because on the seventh day God rested from all his works. God had labored and God had rested. And God says, again, because we are image bearers, you will do like I did. And you will labor six days and you will rest on the seventh. Now, what was God's attitude toward that day? What did God do in creation? God did two things to that day for the benefit of our first parents. He blessed, he blessed it and he sanctified, sanctified it. Alright, he blessed it. So what do you think of when you think of blessing? It's just oppression, right? You think of oppression, <laughs> burden, legalism, Phariseeism, all the all the things if you look it up in a dictionary that are the synonyms for phenomenon. Now what do you think when you think about blessing? What words come to your mind with blessing, Carolyn? Happy. Happiness. Yes. Gifts. Rest restoration, right? Rejuvenation. Joyful things, right? Are all brought together in this. And then he sanctified it. That's a religious word. That's a word that means what? Set apart. Set apart. He set it apart from what? The other six days. Six common days. One sanctified day. So, 
What is its purpose and function? Under what it, why was the Sabbath made, according to Jesus? It was made for the Jews. No. Oh, come on, Carol. All right, no, you're right. It was made for man. It was made for people. And it doesn't just mean, uh, the name Adam means what? What does the name Adam mean? It means man. So sometimes the Bible means so man. You could say it was made for Adam. But if it was made for Adam, then it can, because it continues post-fall, and how do we know it continues post-fall? Because it's given in the Ten Commandments. So that what is given as something in creation survives the fall and enters into the realm of ethics and of duty, just like labor does and just like marriage does. Right? So given in the garden, survives the fall, encoded into moral law, which again, in our broader scheme here, in our studies together, uh, where our principles of conduct are ultimately rooted in moral law. Okay? So its purpose and its function is, is for man. When and where was the Sabbath given? Charlie? In creation. In creation to... Adam and Eve in, in paradise. That's really interesting, isn't it? So what can you glean about the nature of man and woman, nature, our nature as people, that even in paradise, there was a gift given of the Sabbath. And again, what, what, are, its, what are its purposes? To be a blessing and to have religious significance. Right? It's to point us to something. And both of those are for our benefit, by the way. It's not that one's for our benefit, one's for God's benefit. And they're, they're, they're both for our benefit because of who and what we are as creatures. As those who were, as those who were made in the image of God prior to the fall. You think about that sometimes. So what does it say about human beings, even perfect human beings, needed what and what? Rest and worship. They needed rest and worship. They needed an appointed day of worship. And they needed a day of rest. So was Adam tired in the garden? Were Adam and Eve tired in the garden? Were they now, the creation wasn't yet yielding, as it were, its response to the curse and this almost battle between man and nature, this groaning creation, man's now need to subdue it in a different way, not just creatively, but actively working against thorns and thistles and drought and pestilence and, and all of the rest. But well, I don't think it's wrong to say that Adam, as a man, was still, he was still a what? He was still a man. He was a perfect man, but he was still a man. So he was limited. He was human. He had a limited capacity to labor. 
How was Eve created according to the Genesis account? What was Adam doing when he was created? Sleeping. He was sleeping. A perfect man and a perfect environment was sleeping. Because he was tired. <laughs> not to the end of the day. <sighs> you know. Now his muscles might not have his hands may not have been as blistered. Uh, may not have been wounds upon his body as he was conquering and subduing creation to plant and to feed his family. But he knew weariness. And he needed as well, what, and by worship, what else are we saying about man? Not only is man created, is man limited, but man, man has, so he has a body, but what else does he have? He has a soul. The Sabbath teaches you have a body, and it teaches you have a soul. That you are limited. One of the major themes in the Bible, and we don't always like to hear this, is that what is associated with humanity? What are the analogies associated with humanity? Rock, mountain. No, what are they? Vapor. Vapor, what else? Dust, Dust. what else? Grass, flowers. It doesn't look as cool on your avatar. <laughs> that a dandelion, because it does have a lion. But part of what's being said is that you you are weak, you're limited, you're you're you are an image bearer, you also have a soul. And the Sabbath calls us to remember that we are created beings, created by God, that we are weak and frail and limited and post-fall even, and dying. My sister sent a little video clip this morning on our family uh, group chat. And she took some pictures. It was mostly dealing with my mom, who will be 98, Lord willing, in January. And just showed the years. Some of us, you know, your kids, and, and now... You know, some of them, we were kids, now we have grandkids. And it's just that reality, much of one of my brothers said, it was beautiful and sad. Because it's, it's just a vivid reminder of how life is passing and the grave is coming. And the Sabbath should do that for us. It's one of those things that should do it. That every single week, it comes into our head. That God made us. And He made us for Himself. And that I have a body, I am a human being, I'm made in the image of God, and I have a soul, and I am dependent upon God. Because one of the things that the Sabbath reminds us of is our limited capacity. And though as human beings we have accomplished much and done much, as image bearers of God, and as we have been given the ability by God to do amazing things in this world, we are yet limited in our capacity. And even though we live, I mean, you understand, like, right now, we are at the peak of technological advancement. The world has never, ever been more advanced, and in 10 minutes, 
it'll be even more so. And tomorrow and next week and next week. But in regards, some of you have been in the hospital, some are going to be going into the hospital. And, 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 and we're going to, doctor, what's wrong with me? Can you fix it? Can you see this? Can you do this? And some of that they'll look at and go, yes, we can. And other things will say, we don't have a clue. Because we're always going to be limited. We're not gone. So that's one of the things the Sabbath teaches. You didn't just happen. Sabbath is rooted in creation. You didn't just happen. It also reminds you that you are not God, nor are you your own God. But it does say that there is a God. And that we are dependent upon God. And so when we rest, we must also trust. Because if you can't trust God, then you can't rest. Because part of our ceaseless labor is, I gotta take care of it. And every day God reminds you, you can't take care of everything. When He puts you to sleep, you can't do anything other than maybe annoy your spouse <laughs> while you're asleep. But that ability to sleep and to rest is, is rooted in trust. No trust, no rest. And the Lord reminds us of our frailty and of our weakness and of our need to rest. And again, that we are not gone. And we are reminded by the Lord's day, the new covenant Sabbath, we can use that expression, that's what the old writers refer to it as, that we are not only made for this world, but that we are made for another. We are made for a place of eternal rest, what Hebrews calls the Sabbath rest that remains. And it reminds us, not only that we are bodily, and not only that we are limited, but as we have said, that we are meant to be worshipers. And I believe it as well, it shows us that we are meant to worship God communally. This is one of the arguments about the Sabbath in our confession of faith. If God is to be worshipped, not only by individuals, but by communities, there must be a day appointed, and that God must appoint that day. So why the seventh day in the, old, in, in the prior to the resurrection? It pointed Genesis 20, excuse me, Exodus 20, to the creation. And Deuteronomy 5 reminds us, not just creation, but redemption. And what does the change of day point to going from the old to the new? To a new creation. And a new and better redemption. What is the purpose of not labor? And this is something I just want to touch on in closing. Why does God care so much about you resting? Why was rest, why was a failure to rest punishable by death? Was the Sabbath pointing to something greater? Why is it that when a man picked up sticks, it, it was God obsessed with them taking naps? I told you, you know, it's like with a parent, you know, when your one-year-old, two-year-old doesn't sleep. I told you to rest. What's wrong with you? Well, why do you want them to rest? So you can have a break. No, I think it's good for that, but yeah, you know, maybe you're also thinking about it. Why does God, why was God so insistent on penalty of death? So their hearts would 
turn away. All right, so their hearts wouldn't turn away. But why else? Was he pointing to something else? How? In the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant. It was the preeminent way by which worshipers came into God's presence. And by sanctifying that day, they were saying, we are your people. And, yeah. and so by deconsecrating the day, they were saying, you are not my God. Yeah, right. Well, if, if you didn't sanctify the day, if there was no worship associated with the day, they were deconstructing their faith and detaching themselves from God. But is there even something else? Jacob? If you able to rest in Christ, you're going to experience death. If you don't rest in the finished work of Christ, so we as creatures rest in the finished work of God. As New Covenant believers, we rest in the finished work of Christ. If you try to add your labor to your salvation, what is God's pronouncement? It's death. It's anathema. It's another gospel. The gospel is a call to Sabbath rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, does this have any bearing upon our ethics and our witness? I mean, this is not, you know, this is, this is well, remember, we're primarily talking about how we live as Christians. But is there something countercultural? Is there something confrontational? Is there something of a witness to the world that we bear in our gathering, in our coming to church, in what we do and don't do on the Lord's Day, and why we do what we do? What do we lose as creatures, as image bearers, and as the redeemed, if we neglect this gift. Think about that. So take it away. God says, in, in judgment, I'm going to take it away. You're going to work seven days a week. Now. What do you lose? What do you lose? There's no day of worship. There's no day of rest. There's no day. What do we lose? What do we lose as image bearers, as creatures? As the redeemed. So, your salt of the air. We're, we're not. Yeah. We're not different. Yeah. We, yeah. We become like every, like everybody else. Yeah. We become part of a society that's working itself to death. That is all consumed with the here and now. That has little thoughts of God. God is in Psalm one. Uh, Psalmist says God is in none of their thoughts. And in regard to how are my days different, what am I going to do on this day, the reality of I'm an image bearer, God has spoken, God has commanded, God has set a pattern, Christ has died, Christ has risen, that is a part of the structure and the rhythm of our life as the people of God. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord's blessing on these Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this time to consider these truths together from your word. We pray your blessing upon uh, this day. May it be a day of the exaltation of the Savior, the triumph of the word, the spread of the truth. But Father, also a day in which our own souls are refreshed and blessed, where we ride, as according to your promise, on the high hills of the earth and are fed.
fed with the heritage of Jacob our father. May we find delight in our God on the Lord's day. We pray in Jesus' name.